every year in kindergarten I get to conduct these little interviews, and Shane and Marnie have experienced this. Joni's experienced this. Um, if you had kids that have come through kindergarten, you've probably experienced this. We interview the kids about their parents for both Mother's Day and Father's Day. Questions like, what do you wish you could do with your mom? Or what did your dad play with when he was little? And by the way, Nora answered that Shane used to play with the dead chickens when he was little. Or some, something like that, probably. I'm not sure what she actually said. but um, In each of these interviewing scenarios and, and any anytime you question young kids, their, their answers um, tend to be... There's, there's usually two kinds of answers they give. They're very different, these two kinds of answers, but they're exactly what you would expect when ask, asking a five-year-old to describe something. You either get one, blunt honesty, presented absurdly or ridiculously, or adorably, or two, you get blank stares. They're, they either have this ridiculous answer or they don't know what you're talking about and don't know how to answer. Um, because they are five and their brains don't know how to rationally answer a question like, what do you think of your teacher? It's a very open-ended question for a five-year-old. And so you often receive ridiculous answers like, well, she's older than my cat, or she helps me tie my shoes, and that's the best you can think of. Or anything else that tumbles out of their unfiltered mouths, directly out of their unfiltered brains. And those are the interview answers that you hope for. You hope for a goldmine answer like that, where they just say whatever the first thing that comes to their mind. But the more common type of answer is the second type, the, the blank stare, stock answer kind. It's, it's harsh because they're five-year-olds, but they're cliche, they're, they're uninspired, they're lame. And it's because they don't have a command of the English language. They're five. Um, in this instance, the answer to a question like, what do you think of your teacher? Will nine times out of ten be, she's nice. She's nice. That's it. She's nice. Or if you're lucky, they'll stretch themselves and come up with, she's good. <laughs> but they're... There's not much beyond she's good and she's nice. And so you go fishing for better answers. Well, what makes her nice? Or what is she good at? And then you start to get the better answers sometimes. But you're you're usually stuck with the, so what do you think of your teacher? What do you think of your dad? He's nice. Okay, well, what do you think of your, She's nice. Over and over and over. Hoping for that ridiculous, brutal honesty. Because nobody wants to hear that they are just good or nice. It's almost like a backhanded compliment. Those are the words you say about someone when you don't really know what nice thing to say about them. Oh, she's nice. Yeah, she's, she's nice. That, oh, he's, he's good. Uh, it's, it's almost not even a compliment. It's, it's like if I said, Angie, what did you think of how I played the drums in that song? And she said, oh, it was nice. Then I'll lose sleep wondering how I wrecked the worship song because it's nice means you could have done something better and different. We all know what nice and good means. They mean not much. There's no substance there. There's no thoughtfulness. There's no brain power, no creativity. Calling someone nice or good is neither good nor nice. It's just a stock answer. Um, unless you're a shy five-year-old with a limited vocabulary and you just want Mr. Lance to shut up so you can go play tractors again, then it's okay to say nice or good. But there's no encouragement to being described as good or nice. And that's what we're talking about today is encouragement. That's why the responses that make the interview recipients cry are always the ones that show heartfelt thought. I love my mom because she hugs me when I'm scared. I've, we give these cards to the mothers during the Mother's Day tea, and the dads during, we have a little donuts with dad thing. And they give these cards out, and sometimes you get tears because the answers are so thoughtful and so sweet. That will make 
any mummy well up with tears because it speaks to something deeper. The, the, the answer is that the true encouragement comes from, um, from words that speak to, to purpose and, and effectiveness. It speaks to sacrifice and unconditional support. Something like, I love my mom because she hugs me when I'm feeling scared, speaks to the very essence of momminess, what it means to be a mom, in a way that good or nice just doesn't cut. And so think for a second about one of the most encouraging things you've ever heard. Something that someone has said for you. And I'll give you a second to think about it. Something encouraging someone has said to you. Undoubtedly, those words or actions empowered you because they demonstrated how this other person, whom you probably love very much or who you look up to very much when they said it to you, those words or actions empowered you because they showed that they really understand who you are deeply, what fuels you, what your identity is. Something like a timely compliment in a moment of self-doubt will fill you with encouragement. A conversation where you truly feel heard from somebody you love or look up to. A note of support in a time of suffering. A hearty embrace before a nerve-wracking decision. Those are all moments of true encouragement. Today's passage is a beautiful example, I think, of biblical encouragement. And it contains many of the features that I mentioned above. Suffering, truth, inspiration, uncertainty, and physical embrace. All these elements that I mentioned are part of a moment of real encouragement are present here in this passage. The Apostle Paul concludes his supremely effective time in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor by saying goodbye to the leaders that he will leave behind in his absence. These are people he's worked with closely for two years, and now he's leaving them. It is a thoroughly compelling and emotional scene that Luke narrates for us. And in Paul's words and actions, hopefully we will gain a framework for what encouragement can look like for us to give and to receive and what makes it so powerful. So let's begin by reading some more travel plans because Luke is somewhat obsessed with documenting every little nautical detail. And I said nautical detail, not every little naughty detail, for those of you who misheard me. He's obsessed with the nautical maritime details. And so let's read, briefly go through Acts 20, verses 13 to 17. It says, We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When we met him at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. We'll pause there. Man, if only someone had a map to help us make sense of all these foreign sailing details. Oh, wait, what's this? A map. The big map omissions. Okay, that was, you're thinking, that's a nice joke, Chris. Nice, yeah. We know that nice means nothing. So let's move on. So here is Assos. That's where Paul walked over to Mytilene. Or maybe he walked from Troas to Assos. The details, who cares? We don't know this part of the world. Just, there's just, just two quick things that I want to make mention of in this passage. First of all, Luke notes a strange detail in verse 13. Luke and the entire traveling company of men, and there's a whole bunch of men that were named back in verse uh, 4, they took a ship along the coast. So they went like this, in the boat, here we go, on a boat, to there. That's what they did. But Paul didn't do that. Paul wasn't with them. 
Instead, he walked the between 20 and 30 mile journey all by himself, not long after the rest had set sail. Why the solo journey? Why did everybody else take a boat, but Paul walks by himself? It might be he stayed behind in Troas because, remember last week we talked about the story of young Eutychus who fell out of a window, fell asleep during Paul's sermon and fell out of a window and died. But Paul raised him back to life. So he may have stayed in Troas for a little while longer to make sure that Eutychus is okay. Or maybe we also talked about how he's carrying this huge collection of money that he's going to bring to Jerusalem to give to the church there. So maybe he's just worried about the money and he wants to keep it on him. And he's worried about the ship. I don't know. It's probably neither of those things. We're, we're not sure. But I think, judging by the content of the message that he's about, we're about to read, judging by what he says, I think that the reason Paul used this time to go by himself was he used that time to really focus in on God's will for his future. I think he maybe needed a time of solitude to really buckle down and understand what God needs him to do in the days and weeks to come. I think he used that those nearly 30 miles of solitude in the same way that Jesus did after Jesus resolutely decided in Luke 9 that he's going to head towards Jerusalem and head towards his death. Because Paul, that's what Paul expects. He expects that on his way to Jerusalem, he will suffer and experience pain. Um, that's what he says in verses 22 to 24, which we'll look at in a minute here. So I think, I think Paul needed the time to be strengthened for the journey ahead. Not physically strengthened per se, but spiritually and emotionally strengthened, to be strengthened in faith and in dedication. He needed focus and discipline and strength, and solitude accomplishes that. I think he needed encouragement directly from the truest source, and that is God the Father. He needed to spend time with his dad, God. And so he walked solo in order to find the encouragement he needed to devote himself anew to the suffering that God held for him in Jerusalem. I think there's a lesson there somewhere about the necessity of solitude, something that our society really sucks at, just being quiet and listening to God. But that's, I think, what Paul is doing here. He knows that trouble is coming. And so to prepare for that trouble, to prepare for that suffering, and even maybe his death, he takes some time with God by himself. By the way, Jesus did that too, all the time. He was always looking for places of solitude to go pray. So that's the first interesting thing that has to do with encouragement. The second interesting thing is in verse 16. Paul goes around Ephesus because he was in a hurry. If he had gone to Ephesus, people would want to meet with him because he had been there for two years and he was extremely influential. But he was determined to arrive in Jerusalem before Pentecost to celebrate with his people. And so there could be no delay and no visit to Ephesus. Instead, Paul comes up with an alternate plan. When the ship docked in Miletus, he would bring Ephesus to him. He wouldn't go there. He would bring Ephesus to him. And so Paul summoned a messenger among his companions to ride the 30 miles to Ephesus, collected the local leaders of the church there, and the word for that is episkopos, which is translated elders or bishops, and it's where the Episcopalian church gets its name. Um, So he gathered the, the episkopos, the bishops, the leaders, and got them all back to Miletus before the ship was to push off in about 40 hours or so. So that, that everything had to go really quick for this to happen. But eventually, everyone was gathered. Hugs and kisses were exchanged with great joy and a degree of nervousness because Paul, although he looked at peace, he also was very urgent about everything. They could tell something was up. And so they gathered around the apostle who had been their leader for two years and wondered expectantly what new teaching he had for them that was so important. But as they soon found out, the weight of Paul's words wouldn't be found in any new teaching. The weight and power of his words came from the sincerity of his encouragement. So let's read verses 18 to 38. 
the rest of chapter 20. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Basically saying, none of you will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, guardians, protectors, bishops. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied to the ship. It's kind of amazing that what grieved the most wasn't that, hey, you're going to suffer and there's going to be wolves come to attack your flock. They're, they can be ready for that. What grieves them is they won't see Paul again. So it's an incredibly emotional time. Uh, two weeks ago, our friends, Angie and my, our friends, Matthew and Danielle were here and, uh, Matthew and I went for a canoe ride on Lake Wakameo, which is actually a really lovely thing to do. We were out there for a couple hours and we had a great conversation. It was actually very encouraging to match the theme of the day, even though what we talked about was mostly just ducks. <laughs> talked a lot about ducks for an hour and a half, but when we weren't discussing species of waterfowl, conversation moved to how weird it is to grow up. Some people who had been important to us 20 years ago are people that I will probably never again see in my life. Um, classmates, I grew up K-9 to in Clyde and then went over to RF. So I went to school with the same people mostly for 12 years. And they are lost to yearbooks and to vague memories. Most of them I have no contact with whatsoever. Names that bring to mind envy or anger or just plain ugly hatred over slights or injustices done to my person, perceived, they're long forgotten. They were a big deal to me, those people who, oh, they're my enemies for a time. Now that I never hear from them, they, they, they're forgotten. Crushes, here's the big one. Angie's not here, so I can say this. Crushes that dominated all of my mental energy for months at a time. If I crossed them on the street this afternoon, I wouldn't even recognize them. Time moves on, and people who were once important become less important and fade away. And people, maybe who you never expected to become important, 
are now crucial to how you live your life. It's weird how that happens. Even the closest of friends drift away with time and indifference. It's a strange phenomenon how, how transient people can be in our lives. They come in and they, they go out. You wonder what you would have said or done differently if you had known you'd never see them again. Or sometimes it's much more sharp, much more final. A death, for example. Or such a bitter disagreement that you just have nothing to do with the person ever again. And it's less a feeling of strangeness then and more a feeling of grief and sadness and and longing for something different. But again, you're left to wonder about the what-ifs of words left unspoken. It's a strange thing. And it's this sense of moving on that, that marks Paul's farewell to the Ephesian bishops as a truly emotional passage of Scripture. Those last, how they respond to him, they kneel and they weep together and they kiss each other. Um, by the way, if I ever leave this church, don't get in a circle and kiss me. That's, I, don't, I don't want that. Um, I have no plans to leave this church, just for the record, but find another way to, to show your... But anyway, now that I've ruined that solemn moment... Yeah, big bro hug. I'll take a big bro hug. Um, Like Jacob's blessings before his death in Genesis 49, or Moses urging the people to remain true to the law in Deuteronomy 31, or Jesus in the upper room with his disciples before his crucifixion, those are moments of a hugely influential leader knowing they're moving on. For, for, For all three of them, it's death. Jacob gives his last words to his sons, and then he dies. Moses gives his last words to Israel, and then they cross into the, the promised land without him. Jesus, these, he's going to be crucified in hours, and so he needs to really communicate to his, his followers what they need to know moving ahead. And those passages are deeply moving and deeply powerful. And that's what we have here too. Every word of Paul's message is infused with the weight of saying goodbye, of knowing you'll never see these people again. He would write letters to them but he will never see them again in person. He knew that that after this, they were gone. And so to these crucial leaders in a crucial city, in a crucial province, in the most crucially important empire of the day, Paul leaves them with an excellent gift, words of supreme encouragement. That's how he leaves them. And here's where you might be thinking, encouragement? I don't see a lot of encouragement here. How is it encouraging to hear that you'll never see your inspiring leader again? How is that encouraging exactly? How is it encouraging to hear Paul talk about suffering and uncertainty and prison and certainty of death? How is it encouraging to be warned about the inevitability of wolves coming among the sheep that you have to guard yourself against? Encouraging? More like terrifying and unsettling and sad. And that's where I would respond to those questions, which are fair, by the way, with a little bit of a word nerd moment. Please examine for a moment the word encouragement. What word do you find in the middle of that larger word? Courage. Encouragement. Too often we confuse the word encouragement with the word flattery. They are not the same. It may be encouraging to hear someone say that they like my haircut, but it would be superficial and would also be a dirty trick to play on someone with my condition. That's just flattery. Superficial compliments are nice to hear. I mean, I'm not saying don't say, don't say nice things about other people. That would be ridiculous. Superficial compliments are nice to hear, and we should continue to say them to one another, but that's all they are. They're just nice compliments. Sometimes meaningful, sometimes flattering, but in the end, just nice. They don't shape our character in any real way. And we already discussed how flimsy the word nice is. It's nice to hear nice things. 
but that doesn't, that's not deeply effective. Encouragement, however, is something different from flattery or paying compliments, especially in the kingdom of God. Encouragement is, by definition, that which fills us with courage. But not only courage, also identity fills us with purpose and determination. Encouragement doesn't speak to what is superficial, like wardrobe choices or brand of wristwatch. Encouragement doesn't speak to superficial things. Encouragement speaks to our core values. It prepares us for holy things like sacrifice and worship and service. True encouragement, as Paul may have experienced on his solo journey, true encouragement is that which connects us back to the heart and the will of our Father. It tops off our faith tank and fuels us for the journey ahead. It doesn't necessarily eliminate anxiety or uncertainty or pain. Paul anticipated all those things. He anticipated fearful moments, painful moments. So just because he was encouraged doesn't mean he's marching in boldly saying, nothing bad can happen to me now. I am encouraged. That's not what encouragement does. Instead, encouragement takes fear and suffering and grabs them by the throat and subjugates them, puts them in their place. You may still feel, as you got them by the throat, you may still feel pain and suffering kicking at you. You will still feel those things, but you have control over them. Or, more accurately, you know that the Holy Spirit has control over them. Encouragement conquers suffering. Encouragement conquers pain. It doesn't dismiss it or alleviate it. It conquers it. It lets you be stronger than it. And this is what Paul has routinely experienced, and this is what he so beautifully bestows upon the Ephesian elders. Encouragement that is true and holy. True meaning it's rooted in what is right and good and and true, and holy in that it makes you a better servant of Jesus. This is actually the only time in all of Acts that Luke records Paul speaking to a group of Christians, believe it or not. The only time. We have lots of records of him speaking to Jewish believers, and we have a couple examples of him speaking to pagan believers who know nothing about God or Jesus. This is the only time that he speaks to Christians. And in this only time that he speaks to Christians, what does he focus on? Words of encouragement. True and holy encouragement. But what are the contents of this encouragement and what lessons can we learn as people designed to give and receive encouragement? Though it's, I mean, his message here is relatively brief, there's a ton of content in Paul's farewell message. So we're going to look at four major themes, okay? And this will be quick. Here are the four themes. Encouragement by demonstrations of love, encouragements by faithfulness and suffering, encouragements by clarification of purpose, and encouragement by purity of motivation. And Paul goes through all four. So number one, encouragement by demonstrations of love. It's generally a bad idea if you're encouraging someone to begin by, that's, generally you don't encourage someone else by speaking to how great you are, right? Pretend I'm encouraging Dennis. Hey, Dennis, really great job. And to, to illustrate how great a job you do, here's how great I am. Then it becomes just this self-glorification session. It's generally a bad idea to do that. However, it works for Paul. That's what, how Paul begins his encouragement. And it works for two reasons. A, he's Paul. He's great. Everyone knows he's great. It's just understood he's a great servant of God. So by making himself an example, that's acceptable because he's a great example. But B, the other reason Paul begins his words of encouragement by highlighting how great he is, is because his whole purpose is to fill the Ephesian bishops with strength and faithfulness and love. And he has repeatedly demonstrated those things to these people. Strength, faithfulness, and love. By saying, by beginning his his sermon of encouragement by saying, look how great I was. Paul is really saying, look how great the Holy Spirit is 
And look how great you can be. Follow my lead. So he's not saying it to highlight how great he is. He's, he's saying it to highlight what their job will be. And so Paul's demonstrations of powerful love were evident in Ephesus through two year, three years of healings and exorcisms, public displays that made the way of Jesus very popular in Asia Minor. But those were not the acts of powerful love that Paul is referring to here. Eutychus was healed at midnight in a private gathering of believers, just the night before, or like a couple nights before. That was a powerful act of love that was intimate and small. It wasn't public. Paul speaks of preaching here in, I don't know what verse, verse 20. He speaks of preaching publicly and house to house. That he did these big grand community things, but then he also went into people's homes and did small things too. He has faithfully and lovingly brought the message of salvation to all who need it, Jew or Greek alike, no matter their position or status. In other words, for Paul, the powerful love was as much a small and intimate thing as it was a large and, and public thing. He showed these demonstrations of love to, to the whole city of Ephesus at, at a time. But then he would go and show it to, to small groups of people as well. He lived his life fully invested in the lives of these Ephesians. He became an Ephesian. He became one of them. He got to know them. He befriended them. As it says in verse 19, he served them and wept with them. He shared their lives. And that is exactly what a church is designed to do and to be, to share lives together. History will remember Paul for his grand acts of preaching and healing in the city of magic. That even his sweaty headcloth that he would toss off and give to someone, even his sweaty headband would heal people. That's what, what history will, will remember. But this small room of Ephesian elders would remember him for other reasons. One elder would remember him fondly for the time Paul sewed him a new work apron, just an act of kindness. Another remembers the time the two of them brought bandages to the beaten slave from their congregation. Another remembers the time Paul wept with him and his wife after their daughter died. Yet another elder remembers the first time Paul put his arm around him and told him he thought that communion message you gave was really great. Keep it up. Good job. Paul was not only a witness to the gospel of Jesus when he was proclaiming it on Sunday morning, He was a witness to the gospel with each act of humble servants, each display of powerful compassion, and each demonstration of Christ-like love. Those demonstrations of Christ's love, of a great man humbling himself to share life with other men in order to make them great as well, those demonstrations of Christ's love are a portrait of Christian encouragement. They shared life together. He demonstrated love to people who needed to know what the gospel was about. Number two. Encouragement by faithfulness and suffering. It's in this element of encouragement that I think we see the word courage bolded and italicized. Encouragement is when there's faithfulness and suffering. How would you like to hear someone you love, your role model, in fact, say to you, so I got to go. And by the way, when I get where I'm going, they're going to hate me and beat me up and throw me in jail again. And I might end up getting publicly executed along the way. So see you later. Oh, wait, LOL. You won't see me later. I'll never see you again, in fact because I'll be martyred before we get a chance to reunite. How would you like to hear your role model say that to you, somebody you love deeply? It's rough, right? But not so much if we understand it like this. So I got to go. And by the way, the Holy Spirit told me they're going to hate me and beat me up and throw me in jail again. And I might end up getting publicly executed along the way. But you know what? Here's the thing. I trust that Holy Spirit. And if his kingdom is expanded by my death better than it would be by my life, then I'm cool with that. 
And if Jesus' love is made known in all my suffering, then I'm ready to suffer too. Because my life, as Paul says here, is worthless to me. My life means nothing. It's just a life. All it's good for is testifying to the good news of God's grace. And if that's accomplished through suffering, then I will suffer. If his grace is communicated through my pain, then so be it. Bring it on. Oh, and here's the kicker. When in several years you Ephesians face the same sort of punishment and and persecution that I'm saying I will face, because it's coming to you too, Ephesus. And when it comes, you will think of my willingness to face persecution and martyrdom. You will remember my courage in the face of death and dismemberment. And you'll be encouraged by it as well. This is the reason why as a struggling high school Christian, I read Jesus Freaks. Anybody else read Jesus Freaks by DC Talk? It's pretty popular for a while. It's just a book of martyrs, of Christian martyrs through the centuries. And their willingness to face death um, for their faith. And sometimes they were delivered from that death, and sometimes they were dismembered and decapitated in death. But those stories were tremendously encouraging to me. Terrifying, but encouraging. When the man or woman that you look up to is willing to face pain and suffering and death for Jesus, you get a little bit more empowered to, you know, face high school, which is basically the same as pain and suffering and death. High school was hard. As Paul himself once wrote to the church in Philippi, for me, to live is Christ. To live is Christ, and that's great. can accomplish lots of stuff and serve in lots of great ways. And to die is gain, because I get to go be with Jesus. So that's okay, too. Whatever happens, life, death, bring it on. And that's encouragement to these Ephesian people who would suffer. That's Paul's encouragement. Number three is encouragement by clarification of purpose. This part is, I guess, the meat and potatoes of why Paul gathered them to Miletus. Paul is leaving, but obviously the church is staying. Those who remain behind have an enormous task ahead of them. And Paul goes about clarifying that task for them using, in the language of verse 27, he says, make known the will of God. That's what he does for these people. And what is the will of God for these servant-hearted leaders? To be watchful guardians. Watchful guardians. They are to be sentinels in the church, vigilantly watching for danger. Paul instructs them to, to care first and foremost for themselves, which is the old principle, not old, airplanes aren't old, but the principle of apply your own oxygen mask first, that in a, in a traumatic experience, you can't care for someone else if you're dead. So take care of yourself first, and then you can take care of those around you. Put your own oxygen mask on first, and then take care of everyone else. That principle, that's exactly the principle Paul's talking about here. You, as bishops and leaders in the church, you're no good as bishops and leaders if you don't care for your own soul first. So that's what Paul says. If the elders cannot themselves stay upright and healthy in their faith, what good will they be able to do for the church at large? What hope does the church have if the elders and leaders aren't strong? But most of this section deals with watchfulness against outside dangers, not dangers inside themselves, outside dangers. Bishops and elders and pastors, oh my, bishops and elders and pastors, they are all slightly different roles with the same purpose, caring for others. They are shepherds, to use the language of the Bible, shepherds. And their sheep are precious to God who bought them with the price of his son's blood. But there are wolves lurking around these sheep seeking to drag off as many of the flock as possible. These wolves may be slick and persuasive with arguments that lead them slowly away from the fold and towards disaster. Other wolves may be just bloodthirsty and violent, coming in wanting only to devour the Christians like for sport. Just because they can hunt them, they do hunt them. But no matter the threat, no matter the type of wolf, 
the Christian leader's role is to guard and protect with love. And by the way, not just Christian leader's role. That's a parent's role. That's If you have any influence over anybody and you care for their, their, their salvation, that's your role. To, to first care for yourself so you are strong, and then also, not even first, but also along with that, care for others. Oftentimes, the best way to care for your own soul is to care for other people's soul. So they go hand in hand. But we know from Paul's later writings, particularly the pastoral epistles, to letters written to, to Timothy, that these wolves did in fact arrive in Ephesus and began turning people against Paul. A decade or so later, however, there's good news. We know from the, light, the writings of Ignatius, who was an elder in Ephesus, um, that Ephesus would, would resurface as a place of Christian growth and strength. So there was a time where the wolves came and they devastated the church, but they, it was made strong again. Probably it was made strong again because the leaders in the church remembered Paul's encouraging words to them in this exact passage we're reading right now, his words of encouragement in this room where they gathered to hear what their sacred responsibility was during the time of plundering wolves. And their job is this, guardianship, alertness, humble servant. And that is the job of any Christian. Protect your faith at all costs. For leaders or anyone who takes the words of Jesus seriously, the intensity of that job increases tenfold when it branches outward with the call to protect other people's faith at all costs as well. It's always encouraging to know what your role is and to have someone highlight how important that role is. And that's what Paul does for these Ephesians. One more page. I know it's hot in here. I'm almost done. Number four, encouragement by purity of motivation. What does that mean? Well, you notice how after all this talk about protect yourself, guard yourself, Paul then turns the finger back on himself and says, hey, I did really good with money, you guys. He mentions three ways that he was really outstanding with money. He encourages them to reject covetousness. Covetousness is when you reduce your neighbor's things and objectifies them for just the stuff that they have. That, man, I really want a chicken farm. I really bad. That's all I can think about is having a chicken farm. I hate that Andrew and Sharon have a chicken farm, and I want a chicken farm so bad. I don't see Andrew and Sharon. I see just chicken farmers, and I want a chicken farm. I always pick on Andrew and Sharon for their chicken farm. For the record, I don't want a chicken farm at all. I did my time working at a chicken farm. I'm okay with that now. Um, But he says, reject covetousness. Don't pursue things over people. He also encourages them to work hard for a living. And he encourages them to be gracious and charitable with what they do earn while they're working hard for a living. Because, to quote Jesus, even though it's not in the Gospels anywhere, apparently Jesus said it, it's better to give than to receive. But really, this isn't just advice about money. Even though nothing splits brothers apart in the church, brothers and sisters apart in the church, easier than money. You want to see a split in a church? Start talking financial ins and outs. But it's not just about the money. Rather, I think Paul is encouraging the Ephesian elders to ensure that their motives are pure. When a stranger of any kind is nice to you, offers you something, there's often a strange feeling of uncertainty, right? Just yesterday, we were at the summer solstice. There was a mom there who had no cash on her, and she had kids she had to feed, and she couldn't leave to go to the ATM at the bar because she has kids with her, and her mom was... So anyway, this whole story. So I gave her 10 bucks out of my pocket, and she was very reluctant to take that because I'm a stranger and does she owe me something? Like, what is my motivation here? What am I trying to do? I'm a guy giving money to a young lady. That's kind of weird. And so she took it, but then came and brought it back. It was just, when a stranger offers you something, 
it's a shifty situation, right? It's weird. You, you don't know, why are they doing this? What do you want from me in return? People assume that you're attempting to buy them somehow. Even if it's an act of, that's what I intended to do. So if a stranger gives you something, what are they trying to, to, to sell? And so motivation is always in question, but that is not the way among leaders of the church. When they offer kindness, Jesus said bluntly over and over, give expecting no return. Give in a way that you know they can't repay you and you're fine with it. That's, that's how Christians are to be. Our motivation isn't profit or gain. Our motivation is the will of God our Father. We are motivated by God's word, not what little profit we can get out of the interaction. So keep your motives pure, Paul is saying to these bishops. Keep your motives pure and those acts of kindness and charity, keep them untainted by covetousness or greed or obsession with personal debts. If you do that, if you are able to give freely, you will make the selfishness of the world look preposterous and you'll make the kingdom of God look really good. Paul wasn't motivated by money. He didn't become a tent maker for the big bucks. I'm sure there was not a lot of money in tent making. He was motivated by his clear purpose to love others and to suffer so that God could be glorified through his life. And that, by the way, just so happens to be the thing that should properly motivate us as well. That's his word of encouragement. Have the proper reason for doing what you're doing. And so there you have it. Four practices of encouragement. Do I have the four? Yes, there they are. The encouragement of demonstrations of love, the encouragement of faithfulness and suffering, the encouragement of clear purpose, and the encouragement of unselfish motives. Experiencing even one of these things will draw us like a moth to the flame to the kingdom of God. If you experience any one of these four types of encouragement, that will change you. It can change you if you allow it to change you. And the kingdom of God is filled with encouragement just like this. And as great an example of encouragement as Paul is in these ways, how much more so is Jesus? Jesus is the personification of all these types of encouragement. Demonstrations of love, faithfulness and suffering, holy purpose, selfless motives, all of that is found just in the crucifixion story. And all the rest of Jesus' words are filled with this. You turn to any part of the Gospels and you'll see this. And when the truth of Jesus' encouragement hits us, we too, like the bishops surrounding Paul, smothering him with kisses and tears, when the truth of Jesus' encouragement hits us, we too can fall on our knees in an emotional response to being filled anew with truth and grace. Jesus is more than nice and good. The life he calls us to is more than nice and good. The message he gave us to follow is more than just nice and good. Those are unfulfilling, unchallenging, and uninspiring words. In Jesus, we have true encouragement. The power to be transformed by what really fuels us, the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. Paul was a great encouragement to the Ephesian elders and to the Albertan elders and leaders who were sitting right here in front of me as well. So we can be encouraged by his message. Demonstrate love in ways both big and small. Remain faithful in the worst of hardships. Stay true to the tasks your father has given you, each of you. And avoid the selfish motivations of the world around you. If you can do those things, then you will be filled with purpose and power and courage. Doesn't that sound nice and good? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for filling us with all the strength and encouragement Uh, encouragement that we need thank you that as we read your word we see people making mistakes and we see trouble and we see suffering as paul says to these ephesian leaders but we also see you at work in those hardships and in that suffering we see you present healing loving um 
no matter what the situation is, whether things are going well or whether things are going wrong. And Father, we celebrate all the many ways that, that your Holy Spirit in us encourages us, fills us with purpose and meaning and satisfaction and contentment. And we praise you for that. And I pray that we would be encouragers in return, that we would be like Barnabas, sons of encouragement, sons and daughters of encouragement, who bring these encouraging words we have from you to our world to fill them with purpose and power as well. Thank you for your love demonstrated to us through Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his teachings. These are all sources of real, true encouragement, and we praise you for it, Jesus. We praise you in the name of your Son, Father. Amen. All right. Hope that was encouraging, and that was kind of the whole purpose. Have a great week. By the way, if I ever leave this church, don't get in a circle and kiss me. That's, I don't, I don't want that. For the record, I don't want a chicken farm. <laughs>